Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 76, Space Shuttle Flight 9, STS-9. APU Barbecue. Last time, we talked about STS-8, the first night launch of the Space Shuttle. The third flight of Challenger successfully deployed a commsat for India, performed a bunch of science experiments in the crew cabin, made sure that the remote manipulator system could handle heavy loads, and put the Tetris system through its paces. Much of the flight resembled one of the earlier test flights, proving out important capabilities for upcoming missions. Well, today, we'll be talking about one of those missions, which itself is oriented around proving future capabilities. Way back in 1969, as NASA was starting to make plans for what to do after Apollo, they reached out to the European Space Research Organization, the predecessor to today's European Space Agency. Since space projects and diplomacy both take a really long time, if they wanted to work together on something, it was a good idea to start talking early. By 1973, the work was made official with a Memorandum of Understanding, and the Space Lab project was born. To understand the idea behind Space Lab, let's hop over to another notable space project that's taking place in 1973, Skylab. As I hope you'll recall, Skylab was NASA's gigantic orbiting science laboratory that played host to three crews of three astronauts each, contributing vast amounts of data to dozens of different fields of study. But as you'll also recall, Skylab had a few hiccups along the way. Stuck or missing solar arrays, leaking cooling systems, low level of attitude control fuel, the list went on and on. It turns out that keeping a science lab in orbit running smoothly takes a lot of pesky support equipment that just distracts from the main sciencey task at hand. So the idea behind Space Lab was, hey, what if we put our nice little science lab in the back of your robust and adaptable spacecraft? You handle the logistics, and we'll handle the science. And that's exactly what they did. It was essentially a tiny space station mounted in the payload bay of the space shuttle. The shuttle was more than capable of playing host to such a complex payload, and Space Lab was able to focus less on basic infrastructure that just kept their hardware alive, and more on the science experiments inside. I'll explain more about Space Lab itself once we're on orbit. The scope of this Space Lab mission was one that will be familiar to those of us now steeped in early shuttle history. While there were dozens of experiments to perform, the real objective was a shakedown test flight. This spacecraft in a spacecraft was pretty complicated, with a lot of different mechanisms, interfaces, and procedures to check. Nobody wanted to commit a ton of resources to critical experiments that might get blown out of the water by a simple problem. Better to try to shake out the bugs first. Space Lab wouldn't be the only brand new piece of hardware flying on this mission. That's because after flying five times in a row, Columbia was taken out of the flight rotation for a bit in order to make some modifications. The list of modifications is pretty long if you include everything, so I'll just pick out a couple of highlights. The three main engines were removed and replaced with newer ones that were designed to run at 104% of rated thrust levels. Don't worry, the old engines won't go to waste, they'll be enhanced and installed in Space Shuttle Atlantis. Extra seats along with extra stuff like headsets and emergency oxygen supplies were added to support larger crews. The upper windows in the flight deck were modified for emergency crew egress on the ground, including some devices delightfully called Sky Genies. These seem to just be one of those things that you put on a rope that lets you slowly winch yourself down to the ground. 
A sleeping station was added to the starboard side of the mid-deck. You can think of this as three person-sized drawers that crew members could rest in while the other team was on duty. A galley and a hygiene station were also installed in the mid-deck, making it easier for the crew to eat a meal and, well, deal with what results from that meal. And lastly, at least for us, a KU band antenna was installed in the payload bay so that Columbia could talk to Tedris. This crew marked a couple of spaceflight firsts. Perhaps less interesting but worth mentioning is the crew size, which is bumped up to six. And writing this out made me think, hey, that's six Mercury crews. I wonder if they could fit six Mercury capsules into the payload bay, and then I snapped myself out of it. But it is worth pointing out that this one mission would launch the same number of people as the entirety of Project Mercury. The other notable first is that this is the first shuttle mission to fly with payload specialists. I went over this a bit back in episode 67, The Road to STS-1, but allow me a quick refresher on the roles of shuttle crew members, since it's pretty much going to stay this way until the end of the program. Up at the front, you've got the pilot astronauts, the commander and pilot. Again, somewhat counterintuitively, the commander flies the spacecraft, and the pilot is basically a co-pilot. But astronauts don't like being called co-pilots, so pilot it is. These are NASA-employed career astronauts, and their role is to get the shuttle safely to and from orbit and keep an eye on all the systems in the meantime. The second type of shuttle astronaut is Mission Specialist. These are also NASA-employed career astronauts who are particularly focused on the specifics of this mission. Some may have subspecialties such as operating the robot arm, performing EVAs, or working on certain types of experiments. But basically, they're just really smart and capable people who have completed the years of basic astronaut training, as well as trained for all the details of the mission at hand. When they land, both the pilots and mission specialists go back into the general pool and act in support roles while they wait for another flight assignment. And the third type is the type we'll be seeing for the first time today, payload specialists. These are non-astronauts who don't work for NASA and are brought in because they have some sort of special expertise with a very specific aspect of the mission, and a lot of them only fly once. To put this into some cultural context, folks like to joke about how in the movie Armageddon, wouldn't it be easier to teach the astronauts how to drill than to teach the drillers how to be astronauts? Actually, since they only had a few days before the asteroid hit and the drillers were the world experts, I guarantee you that if that movie were real... Harry Stamper would have been a payload specialist. The idea of payload specialists was a little controversial, since the thought was that they were taking a seat away from the quote-unquote real astronauts. Only a few astronauts fly a year, and there were dozens of them waiting for their chance to fly. Why bring in outside experts when you have a group of some of the most capable and dedicated people on Earth just chomping at the bit? But at the same time, it gave NASA a little extra flexibility. Sometimes there really was one specific expert for a certain experiment, and it was a great way to give other countries a chance to fly someone, or even to build political support by flying, well, you'll see. Anyway, love them or loathe them, we've got some payload specialists on this flight. Flying as commander was the one, the only, John Watts Young. Of course, we know John Young well thanks to his flights on Gemini 3, Gemini 10, Apollo 10, Apollo 16, and STS-1. Young is a legendary astronaut, and probably my favorite. But with this, his sixth flight, 
we'll be seeing him for the last time. Normally I reserve the little epilogue for the Mercury 7 astronauts, but Young is practically an honorary member, so just a quick one. While Young would remain with NASA until 2004, he left the cockpit to take on other responsibilities in the aftermath of the Challenger accident, which saw a lot of people shuffling roles. There is some speculation as to why he was moved out of flight status when he would have preferred to keep flying, but with no way to check the facts on that, I'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to investigate and decide for themselves. John Young spent nearly 35 days in space, walked on the moon, and flew six different spacecraft, one of them twice. He died on January 5th, 2018, at the age of 87. Ad Astra, John. Flying alongside Young and serving as pilot was Brewster Shaw. Brewster Shaw was born on May 16, 1945, in Cass City, Michigan. Shaw picked up bachelor's and master's of science degrees in engineering mechanics from the University of Wisconsin before joining up with the U.S. Air Force. As part of that work, he racked up 644 hours of combat in the F-100 and F-4 jet fighters. He joined NASA in the class of 1978, and this is his first of three flights. Flying up on the mid-deck were the two mission specialists. Mission specialist one is, oh hey, look at that, we know this guy. It's Owen Garriott. We last saw Owen Garriott flying as the science pilot alongside Alan Bean and Jack Lausma during the 59-day-long Skylab 3 mission. Well, Garriott would be putting that science knowledge to good use again on this mission. This is his second and final flight. Mission Specialist 2 was Robert Parker. Robert Parker was born on December 14, 1936 in New York City. He grew up in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, picking up a bachelor's in astronomy and physics from Amherst College before heading out to Caltech to earn a PhD in astronomy. He joined NASA as part of the second group of scientist astronauts back in 1967, so he's actually been around for a while, supporting the later Apollo missions and Skylab. This is his first of two flights. Down on the mid-deck, bummer no windows, were the two payload specialists. Payload Specialist 1 was Ulf Merbold. Ulf Merbold is another first for our series because he is the first European to fly with NASA and the first non-American to fly on the shuttle. He was born on June 20th, 1941 in Greiz, Germany. He attended Stuttgart University, earning a diploma in physics and a doctorate in science. Merbold spent a few years working at the Max Planck Institute studying some esoteric stuff about metals that I don't understand at all. In 1977, he was chosen as one of the payload specialists to fly with Space Lab, and, well, here he is. This is his first of three flights, but only two of those were with the shuttle. The third was with the Russians on their way to their space station Mir. Joining Merbold on the mid-deck and flying as payload specialist 2 was Byron Lichtenberg. Byron Lichtenberg was born on February 19, 1948 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Lichtenberg earned a degree in aerospace engineering from Brown University before continuing on to MIT to learn about biomedical engineering and mechanical engineering. It was in support of his work at MIT that he was chosen to fly as payload specialist for this space lab mission. For some of his work that you might be a little more familiar with, you know that company that flies those zero-gravity planes? Yeah, he helps run that. This is his first of two flights. With so much to be done and time at a premium, this crew was really two crews in one. 
That is, they were split into a red team and a blue team, each working in 12-hour shifts to ensure that work could continue around the clock for this brief mission. Well, I guess it's not all that brief. It was actually planned as the longest shuttle mission to date, but still there's a lot to get done. Each team had a pilot, mission specialist, and payload specialist. Making up the red team was Young, Parker, and Merbold, and making up the blue team was Shaw, Garriott, and Lichtenberg. When launch day rolled around, actually nothing was happening. And that's because the launch was delayed by 29 days to swap out the nozzles on both SRBs thanks to the discovery of the close call on STS-8's SRBs. Trivia note, this marks the first time that the shuttle had to be rolled back to the vehicle assembly building after being rolled out for a launch. They swapped out the nozzles, rolled Columbia back to the pad, and on November 28, 1983, at 11 a.m., the three new engines fired up, the SRBs were lit, and STS-9 was underway. Columbia would be flying an unusual trajectory today. In an effort to cover as much ground as possible with Space Lab's instruments, the orbit was inclined to 57 degrees, the highest ever for a NASA human spaceflight at that time. The trade-off was that the shuttle benefited less from the rotation of the Earth, which normally provided a little extra speed during ascent, which meant that the total payload couldn't be as big as usual. The ascent proceeded smoothly, and the crew got to work. So now that we're up here, I suppose I should do a better job explaining how Space Lab worked. Space Lab was made up of two main types of structures, or I guess three depending on how you want to look at it. First were pressurized modules, second were unpressurized pallets, and the third thing would depend on if you want to call the pressurized tunnel connecting the mid-deck and Space Lab its own thing. These components were configurable, leading to long or short arrangements in the payload bay depending on the needs of the mission. For this flight, there was both a pressurized module and an unpressurized pallet. The pressurized module, the part with the astronauts in it, was about 18 feet long and 13 and a half feet wide, though most of the space inside was taken up by experiments mounted all around the walls. Actually, it reminds me of how the International Space Station works today, and this is probably where they got the idea, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. The pressurized part was made up of two segments, the core segment and the experiment segment. The core segment handled a bunch of infrastructure, like data processing, while the experiment segment focused on, well, experiments. Behind the pressurized module in the payload bay was a 10-foot-long unpressurized pallet, which contained a bunch of experiments that would be exposed to space. The crew could keep an eye on the pallet through a window in the back of Space Lab. The whole thing was connected to the mid-deck airlock via a pressurized tunnel almost 20 feet long. The reason for this sort of ridiculously long tunnel was that Space Lab was pretty heavy, so they couldn't just put the whole thing right on the back of the airlock. It would make the entire orbiter front heavy, and then it wouldn't fly so great. Or at all. Over the course of the next 10 days, the crew split up into their two teams and kept Space Lab running around the clock. Commander Young and Pilot Shaw performed over 200 attitude maneuvers and a few orbit trim maneuvers, in support of the science taking place in the payload bay. And for 32% of each orbit, the crew were able to take advantage of a stable and high bandwidth connection to the ground, courtesy of Tedris. According to the mission documentation, 72 experiments were performed that fell into the categories of material science, atmospheric physics, space plasma physics, astronomy, solar physics, earth observations, technology, and life sciences.
One of the onboard experiments was a little different from the rest. When he wasn't performing cutting-edge science hundreds of miles above the surface of the Earth, Owen Garriott was a ham radio enthusiast. For those who don't know, ham radio refers to a whole bunch of different activities involving amateur use of radio. At its simplest, it's setting up an antenna, taking an FCC test, and chatting with other radio enthusiasts. But it can get pretty deep. Really deep. These days, there's even stuff like internet over ham radio, or bulletin board services built into amateur radio satellites. And really awesome stuff like bouncing signals off of the upper atmosphere for increased range. But as any amateur radio enthusiast will tell you, there's also a long tradition of astronauts bringing radio gear into space and talking to folks on the ground. Well, that tradition starts here. Garriott brought a small radio kit with him and made several transmissions throughout the flight. Garriott's little side experiment would spawn decades of amateur radio transmissions to and from human spacecraft that continue to this day. Very cool. When the time came to fly home, things began to run a little less smoothly. As part of the preparations to deorbit, Space Lab was buttoned up, the mission specialist and payload specialist chairs were taken out of storage and locked in place, and Young and Shaw began to prepare the spacecraft for re-entry. To be honest, I'm not completely sure of the why of what happens next here, but I do know the what. Shortly before it was time for the deorbit burn, General Purpose Computer 1, or GPC-1, failed. This is one of the main computers that flies the shuttle. Shortly after that, GPC-2 followed. The crew was unable to get GPC-1 back up, but eventually reinitialized GPC-2, allowing the entry to proceed. My uncertainty is that I don't see any mention of what brought down GPC-1, but according to the mission report, GPC-2 was brought down by a memory alteration. That is, something changed data in the computer's memory, and it wasn't the computer. In space, this is often caused by a stray cosmic ray flipping a bit from a 1 to a 0, or vice versa. But when I look at other sources, an alternate explanation seems to be a possibility. These failures happened right as the crew were firing the RCS thrusters in the nose. One source indicated that these were hard firings, perhaps due to contaminated fuel, resulting in a greater shock than usual, shaking the spacecraft. And it seems that a tiny ball of solder may have been knocked loose, free to wander around its enclosure and making random electrical connections. We've seen this before all the way back on Apollo 14, nearly canceling the landing. Skipping ahead a bit on this mission, when Columbia's nose gear touched down after landing, GPC-2 failed again, which does sort of indicate that it may have been related to the computer being physically jostled around. So, while I'm a little hazy when I get down to the level of detail I normally like to bring to the show, I can definitely tell you that two computers failed, and it was a very serious situation. Re-entry was delayed by seven and a half hours, while the crew and ground controllers worked the problem. My first reaction to that was in the context of a 10-day flight, so oh hey, that's not so bad. But then I realized that's basically an entire workday of stressful debugging, and that's before re-entry. Once the computer situation was under control and Columbia began re-entry, the problems weren't over. From the outside, the spacecraft executed a perfect re-entry and landing after 10 days, 6 hours, 47 minutes, and 24 seconds. Though there was that GPC-2 failure I mentioned right after nose gear touchdown. 
From the inside, though, there was a very serious problem. Nestled in the aft compartment of the orbiter are three auxiliary power units. These are big boxes that burn hydrazine and generate power for systems like the hydraulic controls. Basically, if you want to steer the shuttle in the atmosphere, you need the APUs. So it was pretty alarming when it was later realized that six minutes before landing, APU-1 caught fire, with APU-2 following shortly afterwards. The fire was bad enough that a few minutes after the successful landing, both units failed entirely. The fire was later traced back to a hydrazine leak, which I'll bet had the added fun side effect of contaminating the whole area with toxic fuel. What's really scary about this is that APU-1 lasted 12 minutes from the first indication of a problem to shutdown. That's a lot shorter than the length of a re-entry. If the problem had started 6 minutes earlier, it would have failed before touchdown. On the one hand, this ride home was a scary close call. A computer failure and a fire on some critical hardware are pretty serious issues. But on the other hand, it kind of serves as a testament to the design of the orbiter. GPC-1 never came back online, but the other computers were able to pick up the slack. APU-1 and 2 failed, but not until after landing. And that's why you bring 3 of something as important as the APUs. Redundancy buys you time and options. Luckily, the schedule wouldn't be impacted by the significant damage caused by the fire. Columbia was already scheduled for still more upgrades in anticipation of more complex flights to come. So with this flight, we say goodbye to OV-102 for about two and a half years. Despite its problems, STS-9 was a wildly successful flight. Not only did it return a wealth of scientific data, but it proved that Space Lab was a great concept that was ready for prime time, and we will be seeing a lot of it in the future. Next time. Well, we've had STS-7, STS-8, STS-9... So next time I guess we'll be talking about STS-10, right? Well, sort of. Next time on The Space Above Us, we'll come to appreciate those flight count numbers at the start of the episode more, because we'll be talking about STS-41B. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.